Hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> uh, let's begin in Hebrews 10. Uh, Alan, could I have a little more volume? I had this last night. Uh, a little more, a little more. Test one, two, one, two. There you go. Perfect. Thank you. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10 is where we left off yesterday. Um, the uh, For tomorrow, there's a storm coming. And uh, those of us here know, for those of you online, uh, the plan A is to record class early and then post it uh, because uh, it's supposed to be an icy storm and travel tomorrow night might be pretty dangerous. So if we don't have class tomorrow night, we'll try to record a class in the afternoon and post it or maybe even in the morning. And... um, and if that can happen, I'll, I'll just we'll let everybody know by text. But I'm pretty sure we won't have class tomorrow night. But um, you know, I might as well just go ahead and say we won't, uh, just because yeah, the last time we had ice, uh, which was like two weeks ago, on a Thursday night when I drove home, I was sliding all over the place. It was not fun. Meeting in my car, I was you know. So, uh, yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll try and record tomorrow. I'll post everything and let everybody know by text and email. Hebrews 10, 14, let's begin with prayer and let's be grateful and thankful for God and his word, thankful for his son, thankful for his salvation. That's what today is going to be about is the work of Christ that leads us to the opportunity to obey God and to be grateful in doing it. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son. 
and for the Holy Spirit within us. We thank you for all of you, the Trinity, for the truth that you have given us, the depth of it, which is incredible. Um, We could uh, continue to study the Word of God many, many lifetimes and still not reach the end of it to understand all that you have given us. But what we do have, Father, we are so grateful what we understand, and we know that we will understand more as we go along. And so, Father, we thank you. We ask that through your Spirit that what we'll look at today would be uh, impressive upon our hearts so that we may learn and grow in grace and knowledge. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you have to excuse me for a second. Yeah. I was listening to this yesterday. Where's the switch? Right? Turn it off, turn it back on. Is it working? Yes. Cool. All right. Uh, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. We're in Hebrews 10. Uh, just to, again to remind us, I think by now we, we have the Lord's Prayer pretty well memorized if we hadn't before. But the Lord said, uh, this, Thus therefore you pray, Our Father who is in heaven, sanctified or hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's what we're looking at now is your will be done. Uh, Today we're going to look at how that will can be done with gratitude and not not being burdensome. In other words, uh, not looking at the commands of God, the way of God, which the reason why we find it burdensome is because our flesh doesn't want to. And the way to get over that hump is to see the place that God has set us up with, which is based all upon his giving to us by grace at salvation. If we find out and see clearly what God has done for us and know that by what he's given us and what he's done by work and blessing that uh, we could <clears throat> that we would be grateful for the opportunity to actually do things that are righteous uh, and to be actually quite excited about doing that which is righteous. Uh, God has set us up beautifully to do that which is is just and right and good. So the first three petitions, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. All of those are based or or with this last part this last part on earth as it is in heaven, that would refer to all three, that all three of those, the glory of the Father, the kingdom of God, the will of God as it is in heaven would be on earth and in that in each of our souls And we pray for that and pray that that same reality is in the souls of others, uh, those close to us, those not so close, and to really everybody in the whole world. And then give us this day our daily bread. Now we move from heaven to earth. Bread is earthly. It's our needs. It's our um, earthly material needs, as well as what God has provided for us spiritually. It's uh, whatever we have in the spiritual life meaning what gift we have, what ministry we have, uh, you know, what, what assets we have materially are gifts from God. We need to be content with those. So give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts for, uh, as we also forget, have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this uh, whole, the first part of the prayer, again, tells us that the glory of our Father the ways and laws of his kingdom and his will can fill ourselves, our entire inner selves. And that is heaven on earth. And if my, my soul, my heart, my spirit is absorbed with, and again, this is not going to make us sinless, but uh, is, is in love with the holiness of the Father, in other words, desires it more than anything, Uh, The ways and the laws of the kingdom is what I desire most, and I know that I can do them by the word of God and the power of the Spirit. I have everything going for me to actually obey and uh, also to enjoy the, the way of that kingdom, and again, in myself, and then to follow his will. All of that can fill us with earth, uh, sorry, with heaven on earth, because 
Those things are done in heaven. They're always done in heaven. They always have been done in heaven. And Christ, who said, I am the bread from heaven, came to earth to give it to us, to give us heaven and to give it to us now. And so each of us who are born again believers in this age have been blessed with the ability to, and it's an opportunity, it's an opportunity for all of us to grab hold of what is eternal life. And that's another thing that's in heaven. This eternity of life which comes from God is in heaven. The life of Christ is in heaven, but he has brought it to earth and given it to us. So uh, God's will, which uh, will now be according to the new covenant, which is fulfilled by Christ and given to us by Christ, is in Hebrews 10, 14. It's actually written word for word from Jeremiah in Hebrews 8, which is the new covenant in his blood. But in Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. And so this is what we're obeying. And as the this is not limited to the the Mosaic law, which has uh, in it the ceremonies and washings and and rituals, uh, those things are fulfilled in Christ. But the uh, the virtue of God that is for mankind was in the Old Testament and is expanded in the new, uh, but not. The virtue of or the ethics of the Old Testament, as I say a lot, has not gone away. Therefore, and Christ made a point of that on the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, he says here, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their minds. I will write them. Uh, This means that the law becomes a part of us. This again means that the laws of God, meaning his ways, the stuff that we're to obey, meaning being under his will, what we're praying for, can actually become a part of our spiritual DNA, if you will, uh, flowing through our blood, ingrained in our soul, part of our very fabric. It's <clears throat> Being uh, written on our hearts means it goes much farther than just knowing them. And then, you know, grudgingly trying to obey them. And that's what God is... He has given us the ability by supernatural means, through the Word of God and the Spirit within, to actually live this life supernaturally and to do it with joy and and much of the time with ease, spontaneously, desirously, joyously. And uh, we, we grudgingly, we're trying to, you know, so from where we are, if we haven't gotten there yet, where it's become a joy, if it is still for us something that's a burden, and how do we bridge that? And that's what today is about. Uh, the way that we bridge that is to see what God has done and given for us. So it's the work of the Father through Jesus Christ and the blessings of the Father that have come through Jesus Christ that sets us up with this. And, and so I can say it is part of who I am because of what Christ has done for me, because I'm a new creature in him, I now have a soul, a heart, or a mind that is ready to be imprinted with God's thoughts, with God's will, with God's way. It's ready. It's just ready there to be imprinted like an image. And I can, by faith, uh, with the work of the Spirit within me, have that happen over and over and, and and as I learn, that happens, and as it happens, the will of God, the way of God, becomes a part of me. And when it becomes a part of me, it becomes spontaneous. It becomes instantaneous. It becomes natural. Rather than something I'm struggling to do, it's something that I naturally do and I thoroughly enjoy. And that gap, that it's really the gap from immaturity to maturity. And thankfully, God is very patient with us as we're getting there. And when we're taking too long, he's going to push us. And he knows the timing of that. 
and the way that he, and you know exactly how he pushes us. Uh, he, he is marvelous at that and quite creative, actually. So the law of God written on our minds and our hearts is an image that means God's law has become part of our inner self, our identity, our personality, and it is more than known. But by faith and through the Holy Spirit, the truth and the laws of God become a part of us as much as anything that we would say is naturally us. Uh, we're persons, we're people, we have natural inclinations. You know, like things that we like, things that we prefer. And for some of us, they are the same. And sometimes, you know, we get along with people who have the same likes and dislikes. Uh, but imagine that the thoughts of God and the laws of God become such a part of you that it becomes a part of your personality. Now, here we get to the gratitude part. We cannot obey God unless, uh, sorry, we cannot obey God's will unless we are forgiven and cleansed from sin. And so we must be grateful for the opportunity to obey. Now, for, for us who have been uh, instructed in God's word quite a bit, Alan, can you give me a little more volume, please? It's like I, I feel like my head is struggling. Uh, yeah, there you go. Thank you. Because I want to talk softly. <laughs> uh, we cannot obey God unless we are forgiven and cleansed from sin. And, you know, we're, we're used to this. We're very used to this. We're used to hearing it. We've heard it a lot. And the danger to that, there's, there's like a danger to everything. There's a danger to actually hearing a lot of God's word. Crazy enough. And that is that you become familiar with it. You become so familiar with it, you're like, yeah, 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 I know that, I know that. But when we think of Christ hanging on the cross 2,000 years ago outside of the wall of Jerusalem, suffering like no one suffered on our behalf, like that's an image that we should keep and hold on to and not get familiar with. Uh, that's our Lord who loves us, who has actually gone to hell and back so that we could have this. So that we can say, as we pray, our Father, with completely knowing that we're justified and with great confidence and, and boldness to be at the throne of God, at the throne of grace, and say, Father, you know, here, I, here I am, uh, and I'm not ashamed to be here, though a sinner. And what this, what this does for us is open up the opportunity to obey. And not, an unbeliever can't obey God outside of believing in the gospel. An unbeliever can't live righteously. An unbeliever, when we were unbelievers, we could not follow the will of God. But now, it's wide open to us. And that's where gratitude comes in. We can obey righteousness, which makes the greatest life. O obedience to righteousness makes the greatest life that there is. And, and it, we can do that because Christ died for us. Now, of course, this takes us back to the Lord's Prayer in the opening address where we say, Our Father. We cannot call Him Father without the purification from sin. That purification came by the Son. Jesus said in John 8, Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not remain in the house forever. Now, if, the, if the end is there, we're doomed. If the end is there, then there's no point. You might as well do whatever the heck that you want in this life because you're going to be judged at the end and you're completely doomed. You're not going to live in the house of God forever. But then he said, this, uh, the Son does remain forever. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John 8, 34-36. So the New Testament makes it clear that we're free. Jesus said that he set us free. Uh, Galatians 5 says that we're set free. And being set free, we're free to do what? As free people are to do things. And what we're free to do is serve God and to serve others. In other words, obey his will. A person set free for a purpose who doesn't perform that purpose, or at the very least seek to perform that purpose, is an anomaly, an oddity. Hey, you, you created the first automobile, and you never drove it. You just put it in a garage, and no one ever found out that you did it. You found the cure for cancer. And you're like, wow, isn't this great? I could save thousands, millions, and millions of lives. And you put it in a drawer, left it alone. 
You created something magnificent, and you did nothing with it. And <clears throat> that's when a, a design, a great design, because what we are as new creatures is a great design. Colossians 3.10 says it so wonderfully that we're created new in the image of Christ. We're created new. These, this new humanity that we are is in His image. That image is also in Colossians of the invisible God. And so, in, in some way, as God has made it so magnificently, to which there is still some mystery, that God has made us in His image, and that's a great design. So, if we don't do what we're designed to do, then we're odd. And really, we'll never find comfort. If you're made to do something and you don't do it, you're never going to find your niche. You're never going to find your comfort. You're never going to find your um, your peace, in fact. So we need to be pure. And the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament did not purify anyone. This is made clear. They were rituals. They were types of the one true sacrifice to come, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. But they were rituals and types. They did not cleanse anybody. And so God made a covenant, made many covenants, many, made five covenants with Israel, four of them unconditional, one conditional. A covenant is a promise. And God made promises to Israel, and all but one were unconditional. Uh, at the beginning, there's the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that he would have a son to sit on the throne of God forever, Second Samuel 7. Uh, the, the covenant promise made to Abraham of what land would be given to Israel. We call that the Palestinian covenant. Then there's a covenant with Abraham that's at the beginning in Genesis 12. But then given to Moses was a covenant, the one covenant that was conditional, which we call the Mosaic Law. And everybody in Israel broke that millions of times. If we were there, we broke it too. Every member of the human race, except Jesus Christ, broke that covenant. And because we broke that covenant, God gave us his response was gracious. God's response was to give us a new covenant. And this new covenant would be unconditional, not conditional. If it was conditional, we would break it. But this covenant is unconditional. And we share in that. The church shares in part of that new covenant. Actually, the spiritual part of it. So, God makes this clear in the book of Hebrews. It makes sense that it would be in Hebrews because it's written to the Jews before the destruction of Jerusalem, begging them to consider uh, Jesus Christ as Messiah and begging the Jewish believers who were tempted to go back to the Mosaic Law not to do it. What is amazing in Hebrews, and actually in the Old Testament as well, is that a covenant must be ratified by death and by blood. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and this refers to what? This free gift from, uh, from Christ Jesus our Lord is his death. He would be our substitute. The blood of Christ is a phrase that stands for his death. In uh, Colossians 1.20, it says that he, Christ, made peace by the blood of his cross. Peace between heaven and earth. Peace between us and the Father. Uh, that peace is propitiation. He propitiated or satisfied the Father. And so uh, this wage of sin is death. And why is it death? Well, this is what God said in the beginning, right in Genesis. And uh, he said, if you eat of the tree, you will die. Which makes sense. If you, God gives life, and if you reject him, you get death, which would be separation. And, that, and so God has a, what he calls a second death. If that death, if God didn't intervene at all, that death would be a second death, meaning that it would be judgment. But God did intervene. And by intervening, death is still the penalty, but he took that penalty and put it on his son. But there must be a death. And by this death, this incredible death, 
we can stand before God and obey. And it really shows the opportunity to obey. The opportunity to obey here when there's a lot of opposition. You know, we talk about that quite a bit too. And we talk about obeying quite a bit actually. It's been a lot lately. And here it comes right in our prayer. Um, you know, uh, your will be done. Um, our bodies are riddled with this sin nature. And there was a theory in the early church that said, well, you know, you be spiritual up here in your soul and your heart. But since your body's sinful, just let it be sinful. Let it have whatever it wants. And, you know, so you don't have to struggle with it. In other words, you're, you're two people in there, aren't you? You're an immaterial and a material. And the material is useless. But that's not true. God tells us to control our bodies. And so we say, well, why would you want me to control a body that has sin in it? And God says, well, I gave you that body. It's a gift. Everything created is from me. And I gave you a new self within. And that new self is from me. Christ died to give you that new self. And I want you, because your body is, uh, there's one person who put it this way, as Jesus used the donkey to ride into Israel, we use these bodies to get around. In other words, our bodies are our vessels. It's just the way the Bible puts it, a clay vessel made of dirt, really, dirt and water. Um, and we, we use these bodies to get through life. And God gave us these bodies, and we are to use them to his glory. And how much more is it to use the body to his glory when the body is fighting you? Uh, last night we watched the second episode of The Chosen, uh, the new season. And there's a, well, I don't want to give it away. But there's a scene in which Jesus is talking to somebody who's got a problem. And instead of fixing that problem, I mean, he's God. He can fix anything. We would say to him ourselves, fix this. There's a whole bunch of stuff wrong with me. Fix it. And God says, well, I could fix this. It'd be easy for me to fix it. Like Paul saying, take the thorn out of my flesh. It would be easy for me to fix it. But think of this. What if you glorify me with it? How much more am I glorifying? How much more the people around you see you with all of your burdens and problems and weaknesses and flaws still be happy and content and uh, forgiving and not judgmental? and powerful, and wise. And I say, well, you know, if you're naturally like that because God blessed you to be all of those things, in other words, but you know, he does bless us to do that. But if God took away every single obstacle, we would say, well, of course. You know, the fastest guy on the football team gets to be the tailback. We say, well, of course. They're not going to let me be the tailback. But what if they do let me be the tailback? And I score like 50 touchdowns. Yeah, it's, people look at that. They're like, how does that work? When we glorify God, despite this, people say, how does that work? And they will. They will say. They will ask. They won't verbally, but they'll ask. And God will give you this open door to say, let me share with you how this works. Because it works marvelously. And the kingdom of darkness has tried to silence this, has, has done it very successfully. To silence this truth, to silence Christians, to think, well, no, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to, you know, because people are going to think not well of us or judge us or we're, you know, for whatever reason. And God is telling us, you are the light of the world. Don't put a basket over yourself. Be that light. And when he said be that light, he meant, as he said in context, good works. That they, would, that they out there in the world would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So, Christ had to die 
Look at Hebrews 9.22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I was reading through Hebrews 9 probably, a, what is it, a week ago. It was in the, in the Bible reading two weeks ago. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm puzzling at this. Isn't that like, why blood? I even talked to Chris about this. I'm like, why? It, it says here, and we see it in Exodus, that Moses, when he gave the law, the, the first, really the first installment of the law to Israel at Mount Sinai, he took a hyssop brush and dunked it in animal blood and sprinkled the book and sprinkled the people to cleanse them. You're like, Moses, if you splash me with blood, I don't feel real clean. But yet, it was cleansing. Why is that? And it's because the wages of sin is death. It's right from the beginning in Genesis. You eat of it, you'll die. And where is the life of the, the, of the being, even of animals, but also of us? If our blood shuts off, we die. Other things can go wrong and we can live. The circulatory system, that's a big one. And so the, the life is in the blood, and therefore the life, the death, is given for the life. And then the justice of God is satisfied. So without the shedding of blood, no forgiveness, which means no cleansing. Because that is our problem, is sin. Look at verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often, meaning Christ, since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment... So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. I mean, there it is. Sin is gone. When he appears a second time, he will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. To those who, wait, to those who eagerly await him. And noticing that last part, those who eagerly await him, is very similar to the petition, your kingdom come. I await you, Lord. Whether he's speaking of those in the tribulation or those of us now, we're told that we are to long for his return. And that's because we long for him. We are long, actually, for our resurrection because we long for him. We long for heaven. And not because... But, you know, we just want to be in a nicer place. It's because we love what heaven is. What is there? We don't have much description about it, do we? Actually, we have none. You know, the, the, I don't mean like the streets of gold and all of that in the New Jerusalem. New, the New Jerusalem comes down to earth. But um, what we do have as a description of heaven is holiness, the Father, the Trinity, uh, the laws, the ways of the kingdom, the most the beautiful kingdom, the king and the will of God. Your kingdom come. Right, go to Hebrews 10.10. 10. It says, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And so there we have it, that without a death, there is no forgiveness. Without blood, there is no forgiveness. And, and going back to our previous slide, we cannot obey God unless we are forgiven and cleansed from sin. And I know that we know that Christ did this, but we have to be reminded of it all the time. That's why Christ gave us this prayer. We're not to... Just pray it once and be done with it. This is a daily thing because the discovery of the things that are in it are a lifelong process. This prayer will never remain the same with anybody who prays it with regularity. It, the depth of it will always change. 
And so we must, be, we must be grateful because now we're in a position to obey. Now we're in a position to follow. We could, the cross, we couldn't pick up our cross. It was too heavy. We wouldn't know where it is. But now that we're cleansed and forgiven, we're handed a cross. We've been crucified with Christ, and we are to deny ourselves. How in the world are we supposed to deny ourselves? We love ourselves. <laughs> How are we going to deny ourselves? Are we going to tell this body? No. <clears throat> because God gave us this body to glorify Him. You see, if I want to glorify Him more than I want to satisfy my body, it doesn't mean that I'm going to be perfect at it, but it means I'm going to have a great advantage over it, over my body. If I, you know, if I come to the conclusion that, look, yeah, I know I've got a fallen body, but you still created it, God. And God says, yeah, and I want you to use the members of that body as instruments of righteousness. And by this, you will glorify me even more. In a resurrection body that does not have sin in it, of course you will glorify me. That's the fastest guy in the team winning the foot race. He wins it every day. In high school, when I played football, there was a foot race. At the end, we all ran 100 yards. Was it 100? It was close. 70 maybe. And same kids always won. Same kid always won. You know, uh, in, in our in our politically correct age, we can't say he was the black kid, but of course I can't at church because no one's listening. Because <laughs> he was the black kid, he was super fast. Ron Hilton, I remember him. He was our tailback. No one could outrun that kid. We, I tried, I tried. I thought I was fast. Uh-uh, not compared to him. But you see, what if I did win? I don't know, you know, what if the, the, the slowest kid, <laughs> makes me remember, there was a kid who played, he was a, a Latino kid. He was so big that they had to take two shirts, cut them in half, and sew them together. So that's why he was number 77. <laughs> there were two shirts. And we loved this kid. He shot every practice. He worked hard. But, man, he just liked to eat, I guess. I don't know. But he was a great kid. We all loved him. He was like our mascot. Not, not to put him down or anything. We, nobody there put him down. We, we admired him. We admired his work ethic. Imagine if he started winning foot races. We'd say, what gives, man? Were you on steroids or something? But what the point is here is that if I can glorify God and be Christ-like, knowing who I am, and what I would naturally do with this body and brain that is fallen, then what does that mean? And it means the glorification of God because of what He's done for me. This puts me in a position, a wonderful position. And it's a position in which I have everything going for me. So sin's penalty is death. It's not only physical death. As we know, through the death of Christ, it was judgment as he was judged for uh, the sins of the world. We call that a spiritual death. All of us are born into this world physically alive and spiritually dead. This awful death is a separation from the presence of God forever. Second death. Think about it. It's awful. Uh, separation from the presence of God forever. What is that even like? It's the awful lake of fire where Jesus said that where they're tormented day and night or reserved, as Jesus said, is reserved for the devil and his angels. The awful lake of fire, fire and brimstone. God calls this death. Death, he says, is a curse and it is the penalty of sin and it's terrible. Hence, on a lighter note, eternal life is oppositely beautiful and full of light and life. Christ became our substitute so that we would not have to be judged by the infinitely holy God. And so as believers, and we're going to see today how you can, as you, as you grow in grace and knowledge, you more and more confirm to yourself that you are in this position. It's not that you don't know, you're, I mean, you believe, you're a believer and you know that, you know you're in this position, but to to see yourself more so. Right? We're new creatures in Christ from the day we're born again and saved, but do we really see ourselves as that, 
like the day we're saved. We don't even really know what it's about. But as time goes on, if we follow this plan, we will begin to see ourselves more so as this new creation and then even more so like it to the point where we're so convinced. Right? Paul says in Romans 8, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. You say, well, you know what, Paul, why weren't you convinced of that the day you were saved? Well, it's because he didn't know as much about it. He didn't know as much about uh, Christ's sacrifice. He didn't know as much about the salvation that comes from God. He didn't know as much, but then he did. And the more he knew, the more and more and more he was convinced to the point where he said, look, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Either one. I'd rather go home to be with the Lord. And that's being convinced. Convinced of who we really are. And so there's no duality in our souls. And that happens with believers. It happens with all believers. Right? You got your there's like a there can be a duality between your secular self. We talked about that yesterday. There's a secular life, which is my job, my home, you know, my bills, what I eat, shopping, uh, you know, errands, boring stuff. Right, Deb, Deb, you love going shopping, right? Boring stuff. Won't have to do it in heaven. Is that is so? Is there a secular life and a spiritual life, and they're two separate lives? The Bible knows nothing about that. The Bible only talks about them being together. That actually we glorify God in everything we do. We do everything to the glory of God. So, well, how do I go shopping to the glory of God? I hate going shopping. I don't know. <laughs> No, I, I mean, I I know that I, I, I wouldn't know how to explain it from a, a, a doctrinal point of view, but I think every one of us can figure it out, that we can do everything unto him and not be excessively burdened or worried, right? He says it on the Sermon on the Mount. Why are you worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or what you're going to wear? When your father knows you need these things, he will provide these things like he does to the birds. So... Seek first his kingdom. That you seek. And so we do everything in that. And this becomes, instead of a duality of life between secular and spiritual or between flesh and spirit. Like, you know, we, we Christians they lead double lives. I know that they do. That when no one's looking and it's alone time, it's flesh time. And when others are looking, it's spiritual time. And they play this duality. And you'll never find rest. You're constantly hopping from one foot to the other. Your conscience will be bothered. Why? Because you're a born-again believer. And the Holy Spirit is in you. Your conscience will be nagged. You will not find the peace that you know is available. So duality's out. We are one, and this is where Christ put us. And so as we mature, so we have to make decisions to mature. And that's where we get to next. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. And this, uh, 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11, is quite the impactful passage uh, I used to look at it so differently than I do now. And it's wonderful to go through this passage. It's wonderful to have learned enough Greek to go through this passage in Greek. That's what really makes it come to come alive because the words aren't as familiar as they used to be, obviously, because I'm at the beginning stage. But um, it, this passage really sings. And this it's the opening paragraph of his second epistle. Uh, in this, he opens this epistle with this principle that Christ has set us free and blessed us spiritually with things that no one could have ever imagined. No one in the history of the world could have ever imagined that a divine nature would be given to a man. Right? In, in mythology, those were demigods. That's where Gilgamesh and all of those gods and in, in, in uh, Greek mythology too uh, where you have, you know, half man, half God. 
and they were kind of stuck between the two worlds. And uh, anyway, it, but who would have imagined that in a common person, a divine nature would exist? And that a fellowship with God would exist? And, and uh, Peter brings that out, and then when he's done really wonderfully uh, presenting that, the second part of it, of this opening paragraph, is what we're called to be. In other words, if you are this new creature and you are set free, what should you be doing? So, look at verse 1. We'll read it through once and then we'll break it up into two parts. Simon Peter, a slave or a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours. And when it says same kind, the word kind is really means precious. Same preciousness. Same kind is, is too weak for this word. It's Isa to me uh, means honorable or precious of the same kind. So we, we would say to those who have received a faith that is as precious as ours. All right? That's much better. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice where the faith comes from. It's by the righteousness of God and our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage, wonderful passage for the deity of Christ. He is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Father's not mentioned. It's God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's his opening. <clears throat> then he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So we have faith in verse 1. You've received a faith that is as precious as ours. And then in verse 2, we have a knowledge. So faith and knowledge. Again, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So here's another gift. God has given us everything that we need through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these, and we have to, we're going to pause when we get through this and find out what these are. He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So the verse 4 is the first half of this. And it, it's easily seen by the start of verse 5 is uh, the word now. Right? And so he says now, and this is the second part, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, which means to make every effort, in your faith supply moral excellence. Now in your faith takes us back to verse 1 you have received a faith of the same preciousness as ours. Now, he says, in your faith, supply. And <clears throat> this means you, you do what is necessary with your faith to supply what is moral excellence or virtue. And in your virtue or moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness which means to be devoted, fully devoted to God, and in your devotion or godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love, which is agape. For if these qualities, notice what they are, they're qualities, but what kind of qualities? They're divine. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it shows us here knowledge, which he mentioned back in verse 2, uh, has a purpose. And the purpose of the knowledge of God is to make us fruitful and useful. That knowledge is to be used. It is to be applied. It is to be lived. Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So now what did we just see in Hebrews 9 and 10? That Christ has purified us from our sins. For believers, all believers are purified from their sins. All believers are cleansed and purified. The blood of Christ has 
through his blood, we've been forgiven of all of our sins. Paul, uh, sorry, Peter here says, anyone who lacks these qualities has forgotten this. And so what does this mean? If we're going to have, say we don't have these qualities right now, hardly at all. Am I virtuous? Do I have self-control? Do I have knowledge? Am I godly? Am I devoted to God? What if I say no? Don't despair. Um, talk to God. Confess. And speak to Him in prayer. Right? Forgive us our sins. It's right there. As we forgive us our debts, that is a debt before God. We are indebted to God by Him setting us free to live this way. And so, what's the solution? Is to remember. Stop forgetting. Put it back in your mind. Focus on it. Concentrate on it. This is not a passing thing that Christ died for us. It's a, you know, a blip on the map of history. It's not a passing thing. It is the one event of all of mankind, all of human history. So it shows us here that we can forget it. More easily distracted. So he says in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, make all the more diligent. Now, it's very important to see that he calls them brethren here. right? These let, all the epistles are written to believers. And they're not written to unbelievers. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Now, this Lordship Salvation people grab hold of this and say, See, you can't tell you're saved. That's not what he's saying. All the, be all the more diligent to make certain. And certain means certain. The Greek word means certain. And the certainty here about... Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Make, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never... And there's a double negative here in the Greek. It's ume. Ume always means never, no, never. You will never stumble. So in other words, as I am focused on my calling and my election, is what it is, then I will never stumble. When I've forgotten my election, that's when I do. and, And so I have to be, in every waking moment, knowing who I am in Christ Jesus. And that's what he means here by making certain. It's not making, am I, belie- am I saved? It's not that. But there are times in believers' lives when if they're really striving to please God, they may doubt they're saved. <laughs> because they're, it's, it's kind of ironic. I, I think those who are striving to please God the most are the ones who could doubt you know, because they, they come up short and they know it. But I don't know that. That's just conjecture. The the making certain here is is making it more sure. In other words, more and more often I see myself as the elect of God. Not just Joe, right? The elect of God. Not just a guy, the elect of God. Not just a girl, not just a worker, not just a husband, not just a wife, not just driving in my car, shopping in the supermarket. I'm a customer. No, well, you are at the time. But you're an elect of God customer. That's what you are. See, that's unto the Lord. Uh, being more diligent to make certain means to, to through, through, uh, truly in your soul, through and through, to solidify this fact that you're the called of God and therefore God has put you in a position to do His will. Your will be done. And in this, you know, as time goes on, as you put, and I, lo- I love how Christ put this simple prayer together and He paints us into a corner. Say it, your will be done. Alright, I said it, but I don't follow his will. Say it anyway. Right? You have to say it. You say, well, I'm, I'm a hypocrite if I say it. All right, but you still have to say it because I'm your Lord and I told you how to pray. Right? If I'm your Lord, you have to obey me. So keep praying it. 
and either stay a hypocrite or change. And if you pray it every day, you have to every day admit you're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. And eventually you're going to be like, you know what? I'm going to change. I want to change. And see, when you really want to change, that's when God can start working. The, the prayers we always we mention this, we say this a lot too, but the uh, God change me, just not right now, you know. In the back of your head, you're like, maybe tomorrow. Not now. And what can God do with you? You will only resist him. This is a partnership. And, and Peter said this. Uh, where, where is the verse 4, isn't it? Uh, yeah, verse 4. For by these, when we say what these are, we're out of time for the these. I'll have to get back to it. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises that by them... Precious and magnificent promises. You may become partakers of the divine nature. That Greek word means to be a partner of the divine nature. That's walking with God. That's God is my partner. God is my husband. His way is my way. His mind is my mind. Where he says, I say. Where he goes, I go. That kind of thing. That's what partner means. So what's the key to this? I, I was going to break this down more, but I don't, I don't want to start that with just a few minutes left. The key is back again in verse 9. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. Why? He has forgotten his purification from his former sins. He is for, he's not thinking hardly at all about the cross of Christ, about Christ's sacrifice about Christ's death and resurrection, the death of Christ that was done for him, the fact that through Christ's blood, he is completely clean of all sin, which gives him freedom, freedom to serve. But in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, right? and I love how Peter does that. We don't arrive. You don't say, well, I'm fully virtuous now. I can stop. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the... I can't stand this. The New American Standard does translates epinosis in verse 2 as knowledge. In the same exact word, it translates it true knowledge in verse 8. That's epinosis in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the true knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, back to verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This gift of knowledge that God has given us is to be used. It's to be used to make us fruitful and useful. Useful to the Master, and we know what the fruit is, the fruit of the Spirit. And so, to my rushing ahead conclusion, is that it? Yeah. Let us be grateful that we can obey righteousness. And if you're not grateful... In other words, if righteousness is still a grudge match, if it's still a pain in the you-know-what, if it's just, I don't, I, all right, I'll do it, but I don't want to do it, that kind of thing, pray and meditate on the gifts that God has given you. Which is going to be really our next petition. Give us today our daily bread. It's really bread refers to all God has given you today. Just for today. And he's given us a lot. A lot. We have a tendency, not to go on here, but we have a tendency to look at what we don't have, what's going wrong, our projection. I love, I love living in my projection of the quote-unquote near future. I think this is going to happen and that's going to happen or this is going to happen and fear creeps into my soul. What am I doing? Like I know it's going to happen. 
like it matters anyway because it's all under God's control. Where's my trust? Where's my faith? And again, this is where we're at here. Pray about it. Meditate on it. The gifts that God has given you. One of those gifts is faith. Faith is a gift. So let us be grateful that we can obey righteousness. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your gifts. The gift of prayer, the gift of your word, the gift of passages like this that reveals so much about your plan and what you have for us, what we can do with you, which is more than we can imagine. May we grab hope by faith, Father, and may we not forget our purification from our sins that was earned for us by our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.